You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 117. 117, Jake. That means we have 83 episodes to go before we have to pull off our 200th live event. <laughs> so the clock's ticking. We've already got that starting to plan out. Yeah. It's, um, we've both been so busy. People that listen to us probably don't realize this, but Jake and I almost never see each other. In fact, we're not, we're not even in the same place when we record the podcast. Yep. Uh, but you know, you're headed toward uh, some really cool stuff. Um, you know, we have a bunch of stuff happening with a modal point that's changing. Um, we've got a bunch of growth in the podcast world. Oh, by the way, Jake, I'm glad we we're talking about this. So Oil & Gas Global Network, we're getting ready to change that into a magazine-style web presence, and we're going to invite our entire audience to come contribute content. So if you have a company that you're working for and you want to get your company's message out there, you want to talk about your product or service, we're going to let you shoot some short video and post it on OGGN so you get access to our audience. How cool is that? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So if anybody wants to know the details, it's um, reach out to me and I'll be happy to share it. It's probably be another month before that goes live. Um, but it, this way is kind of we get to um, help you if you work for a company or work for yourself, get your message out in front of the oil and gas industry. And we're not charging you anything. And speaking of not charging anything, Jake, we also have a radio station we don't charge for. Exactly. Completely free, 24-7. You want to listen to our amazing voices, you can do that. Yep, so Jacob put a link in the show notes. Uh, speaking of amazing voices, we have some amazing on-the-road sponsors. So we have Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. They literally are the landman's virtual office. Go check them out if you're in that world. Without them, we wouldn't be able to travel and hit all these conferences and meet all our fans out there. And also, Lee Heck Harrison, they're global experts in talent management. Uh, Lee Heck Harrison helps over 75% of the top oil and gas companies with leadership and workforce transformation. So uh, Take take a look at these two companies. It's um, like I said, without their help, we wouldn't be able to travel as much. And then, if you'd like Jake and I to come talk to your organization, your conference, your company event, sales or marketing meetings, any of that sort of stuff, let us know. We'd we'll be happy to share the details. We have a whole bunch of colleges uh, starting in the fall we're going to go speak to. So if you're at a university and you want us to come speak, let us know because that the end of the year is starting to fill up for us. Oh yeah, we've got at least probably half a dozen to a dozen. I can't remember the exact number now. Yeah, I think it's eight. I think we're up to eight. Okay. Yeah. So let us know, and um, I think Jake's about time we just jump right into the news stories. Let's do it. So the first story uh, is kind of a continuation of the story that we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about how EQT purchased Rice Energy for $6.7 billion to create one of the largest uh, natural gas operators in the U.S. Um, so I came across this article. It was giving a little more backstory about the Rice family, uh, who made up most of the management team and owned a majority of the shares. So I thought this was really cool. Um, so these brothers moved out to Pittsburgh while in their 20s and started the company from a downtown apartment. Uh, they <laughs> sandwiched data mining sessions and trips to scout oil and gas deeds at local courthouses between rounds of beer and Call of Duty, which is love a it, game love it. <laughs> uh, but even though they were all play, they were still all work. The company went IPO in 2014. Uh, the family owned a third of the company's shares at the time, uh, which valued them at $900 million. Uh, and those shares ran up another 50% in gains by that summer. Um, they uh, drilled a Utica well called Bigfoot 9H that by one measure ranks it as one of the most successful um, wells in, in all of history uh, with initial production of 41.7 million cubic feet per day, which was That's enough crazy. to power every home in Pittsburgh for 36 hours. 
Yeah, yeah, which is absolutely insane. So I, the reason I thought this this story was really interesting was the Rice brothers have developed a reputation as colorful characters, um, which in oil and gas is not really known for people who are like really eccentric. Um, so here's here's the few of the things that they, they put in this article. Uh, the brothers commemorated many of the company's big wells and landmarks with custom-made championship belts from the same craftsman who makes the WWE belts. <laughs> they have used a wrestler Hulk Hogan's theme song as hold music at the company's headquarters and named the company's wells after monster trucks and comic book characters, including Captain Planet and Gold Digger. And when coal miner Alpha Natural filed for bankruptcy protection and sold some assets in an auction, the Rice Brothers showed up wearing Mickey Mouse t-shirts and shorts underneath blazers. Yeah. And so what's cool about this is this is a bunch of millennials that look like or and act like they're from Silicon Valley, not from the oil and gas industry. Um, exactly. and, and our industry needs more of this sort of stuff. It's um, We need more people thinking outside the box. We need more people like these. I mean, it's a bunch of young guys that have been super successful. So, um, you know, I, I think this is really cool. I think it's funny. And you know, Jake, that that uh, there's probably a bunch of their competitors are looking at them like, what the heck are those young kids <laughs> doing? But they're blowing it away. They're, they're you know, they're, they're super, super su- successful on this. So this is all good stuff. Great story. Good find, Jake. Up next, Energy Secretary, uh, which is Rick Perry. Uh, said the U.S. is to aim for energy dominance, not just energy independence. Um, So uh, Rick Perry said his marching orders from President Donald Trump aren't merely to push the U.S. to energy independence, but to leverage the nation's resources to advance its interests. Yeah, it's um. There's not a better person on the planet for this position. It's um. I was actually kind of hoping he would have done better running for president. Big fan of his. Um, but you know he's laying out, um, he's laying out a plan so that so that the American people benefit and we create American jobs and American prosperity. And it's not that we're going to take stuff away from the rest of the world, but we're putting the U S first. I just think this is awesome. Um, you know, one of the things that I love they talk about is that, um, he says, there's a quote in here. So basically says, first we'll attack the conventional wisdom that says you can't drive the economy without harming the environment. And that's something that I am a big pro, a big proponent of because it's true you can drive the economy you can use fossil fuels without harming the environment and actually our environment gets cleaner and better every year so um you know when he was governor he kicked butt in the state of texas right he led the nation in job creation uh, he turned texas into the number one wind uh, producing uh, uh state in in the country and we did that without the subsidies that you see like in california um he also reduced our carbon footprint uh, and reduced a whole bunch of other pollutants in the te- uh, uh, in the Texas environment. So, great guy, is perfect person to run the energy policy. Um, now, the, the thing that's going on that I think is is interesting is that there's a lot of people out there that don't understand the science of what's going on, and so you have public opinion which is um, skewed uh, here and in Europe. Uh, you go to some place like Africa or India, and they're so happy just to have electricity that they don't have any of this problem. So one of the things that Rick Perry's going to have to deal with is the the delta between the public opinion of what's going on, because he's a politician, and what it takes to actually get there, right? So, you know, when, when you're starting to look at wanting to be energy dominance, which we have the natural resources to be able to do that, we're going to have to have the public along with us. And so it's, it's, that's good. I think could be the struggle, Jake, is, is actually helping the public understand the reality and the science of what's going on versus what they read on Facebook. Yeah. So on the flip side of the, uh, I guess, speaking of what you read on Facebook, (laughs) (laughs) uh, France is looking to ban all new oil and gas exploration in a renewable 
energy drive. So France is stopping, stop granting licenses for oil and gas exploration as part of a transition towards, quote unquote, environmentally friendly energy being driven by Emmanuel Macron's government. Yeah. So they're basically it's not going to allow them, anybody to explore for hydrocarbons in, in the f- French part of the world, which is fine. They don't have a lot to begin with. And it's also, I'm actually, I actually think this is a good thing because they're going to have to buy them from somewhere and they're going to buy them from us, <laughs> um, which means the prices that the French people pay for things like paint and adhesive and duct tape and plastics and, you know, everything else is going to go up. Um, but, you know, you know, always a big supporter of what the voters believe and the, what the voters want, whether it's a state or a country. And so if if the country itself doesn't want to explore for hydrocarbons, I'm actually a big supporter. I think that's great. The other thing is a little bit different about France. Is, well, there's a whole bunch of things that are different about France. But one of the things is they're not anti-nuclear. So I think about three quarters of electricity is generated by nuclear plants. And, and nuclear is the safest, most environmentally responsible way to generate electricity on the planet, bar none. The problem is, we're talking about this at the last article, is public opinion. You know, Greenpeace got its start because it was anti-nuclear. And they've they've built this kind of anti-nuclear buzz that's sort of in the back of everybody's head here and in, 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 in Europe. And so it keeps us from, you know, tapping into basically, which is, you know, unbelievably clean, uh, can be very cheap electricity. And so since we're anti-nuclear, and by the way, Jake, Greenpeace is also anti-hydro, so they don't like dams either. So, um, you know, so France is a little bit different because they don't have that sentiment and such a big part of their um, their energy requirement is, is met by nuclear power plants. Uh, but it is going to be interesting to see what happens um, when they actually start to implement this. Because what happens is the French people are going to see an increase in what they're paying for 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 things, everything from products to, you know, diesel and jet fuel and gas and all that sort of stuff. So um, it'd be interesting to see where this goes. I, you know, once again, you have politicians talk about things and there's always a delta. And it's the same way here in the U.S. and it's the same way anywhere in the world. There's always a delta between what politicians say and then what they actually do. So we'll keep an eye on this one. But this one's this one's actually uh, this is actually kind of funny. So the title of this uh, this next article cracks me up. Shale Jedi who turned Enron reject into gold builds again. Okay, so anything with Jedi in the title, especially on an oil and gas publication, is obviously going to catch my attention as I'm sitting here in my Star Wars shirt. Um, <laughs> so uh, after helping give birth to the U.S. shale boom a decade ago, Mark Papa is starting over at age 70 with a new $3.6 billion oil explorer he built from scrap uh, amid the worst market crash in a generation. So if you don't know, uh, he built... Um, the Enron Corp cast off EOG resources into the fourth biggest U.S. driller. Um, so now he's starting with a $500 million private equity stake, uh, and he's boosted the value of Centennial Resource Development more than sixfold in under two years. And the company has no debt, which is absolutely unheard of in this industry, um, and is flush with assets in one of the world's busiest oil patches. So I think this is a this is a really really cool story. It's a, it shows a guy who has worked uh, successfully in this industry for so long, and he just can't retire. Yeah. And so Mark Papa is a legend. We talked about this a long time ago. So I, and I cannot remember the number, but when he first started this, he basically reached out to his friends. And he raised, I want to say it was $6 billion to get started on this. And I remember telling a friend of mine, it's like, that's the type of friends I want. Where I, I can reach out to like my that. friends and raise $6 billion. Mark, can I borrow a billion real quick? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what is cool about this is he's, 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 I mean, this guy's been doing this forever, but he thinks like he's just gotten into the industry. So what he did is he took the conventional methods of, of 
making money in oil and gas and he just wadded that piece of paper up and threw it away and he started with a clean sheet. So what he's doing is he's going out and acquiring assets for pennies on the dollar, but he's going after oil, which everybody, including myself, uh, will tell you that I don't think that for the short term, that's smart, right? Um, but he's also looking at um, bringing in new technologies. He's looking at um, going in production in places like offshore and deep water, whereas break-evens could be $30 a barrel. And because he's bringing in new technologies because he started with um, a blank sheet of pepper, new processes. And so if he pulls this thing off, and if you look at his track record, he has a strong track record of pulling this thing off, he is going to drive so much change in our industry because everybody else is going to have to compete with him. Um, and you know, and at that break-even point in deep water, that's that's nuts. So we're, we're going to keep an eye on him. I, I know he's be successful this. He's been successful in everything he's touched. Um, he has a, a huge network in this industry. Um, he's done this over and over again. Um, so, you know, I, I love the shell Jedi because that's, that's exactly who Mark Papa is. May the force be with you, Mark May Papa. the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, up next, the deepest exploration well ever signals a return for offshore oil. Um, so obviously, uh, oil prices have been a big item lately. We've seen crude plunge uh, below $45 a barrel uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and one thing that they're not really reporting is that the cost of actual drilling these these wells is actually dropping even faster than the, the price of oil, which is great. Um, so there's a whole bunch of uh, state governments over in Asia, and I think it's even Russia. There's like a huge joint venture between like six countries slash companies, uh, and they're preparing to drill a well up to 15 kilometers deep targeting the Caspian Depression, um, which would eclipse the previous deepest well ever drilled, which was 12.3 kilometers um, out in Russia. Yeah, so Jake, just for our, our listeners inside the U.S., that is over nine miles. That's insane. That's crazy, isn't it? Nine miles. And what happens is like everything else we do, if they pull this off, and I am 100% convinced they will pull this off, they have now pushed the technology limitations of our industry again. Right. So if all of a sudden they could do nine miles, you watch in two years now, we're going to be doing 15. And like, so where does that stop? Um, once again, that's directly a reflection of the new technologies coming in the industry um, the ability to know where that bit is, do measurement while drilling, um, very high horsepower top drives. You know, all that sort of stuff allows us to go further and deeper and faster. And they're not doing this to break a record, Jake. They're doing this to make money. So if they pull this off, and I'm 100% convinced they're going to pull this off, this is going to push our industry from a technology achievement point of view out to that next frontier, which means that this will start becoming the norm, which means that down the road we'll push it again. And it's just it's really cool stuff. I, I Think about how much oil is actually hidden in the deepest parts of the ocean. Like, you know, we, we don't know... We know more about the moon than we know about the, the floor of the sea, right? Yeah, and the, the other thing is hydrocarbons are everywhere. So we talked a while back, it was probably three or four shows ago, about the um, the Chinese and the Japanese that were tapping into the uh, crystallized um, gas on the ocean floor. And, you know, nobody's been able to do that before. That, that is, those hydrocarbons are everywhere on the ocean floor. So, yeah, you're right. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of deep water explorers out there the first one pops in my head is Jacques Cousteau which probably most of our audience can't even remember who that is um, but you know you're right Jake we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about our oceans and I think it's cool that we're now with technologies being able to explore more of our own planet yep so up next oil industry to waste trillions as peak demand looms ExxonMobil and its peers risk blowing $2.3 trillion in oil projects that will not be needed if the world hits peak demand in the next decade what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I've been talking about this for a very long time. 
that this is back when everybody thought there was peak supply, right? That we could run out of oil. And I kept saying, no, no, no. I think we'll hit peak demand before we hit peak supply. And I still believe that. And peak demand is basically at some point on our planet, the demand for crude and natural gas is going to hit the top. And then from that point moving forward, we'll use less and less. So I, peak demand is, is a very valid hypothesis, right? I don't think it's going to happen in the next 100 years. It will happen, but I don't think it'll happen in the next 100 years. And the reason I say that is this carbon tracking initiative, I actually read this report in detail. They're just looking at fuel. They're, they're looking at fuel and they're looking at the probability that the globe as a whole will actually agree that man's contributing to global the speeding up of global warming and we need to make sure that we don't warm the planet more than two degrees celsius number one i don't believe that and and this has caused a lot of headache and a lot of people have gotten really mad at me uh, for, for saying that and but it's it's based upon science i've had a very i've had a lot of very smart people reach out to me to try to help me understand that i'm wrong about that and they can't and all i ask is one simple thing i want one peer-reviewed double-blind, placebo, repeatable report on the data that shows that man's activity is speeding up global warming. And you can't find that anywhere on the planet. Now, you can find a bunch of studies, but a study is proof of nothing, right? And you can find a bunch of similarities, but a similarity is proof of nothing. So I, I, this, I, I think peak demand is nowhere near close. We'll continue to use hydrocarbons at a rapid pace because it's what you need to bring up a country's population out of poverty and bring it up to Western standardization, right? You need cheap, abundant, um, environmentally responsible energy. It's the only way you can pull people out of poverty, pull nations out of poverty. And hydrocarbons fit in that model. And I'm not saying that we're going to use it for fuel, but everything from the blades of the, the wind turbines out there to the uh, wire insulation on the solar panels comes from oil and gas. So I, I do think we'll hit peak demand, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's at least 100 years off. So Halliburton is in talks to buy uh, Billionaire Kaiser's equipment firm, uh, Summit ESP. Uh, they make submersible pumps. Um, the company was backed by Oklahoma Energy and Banking Billionaire George Kaiser. He's like the majority shareholder in, uh, I think it's Kaiser Francis, Francis Oil. Yeah, Kaiser Francis Oil. Uh, and he also owns a whole bunch of banks, BOK Financial Corp., uh, which owns banks from Arizona to Missouri. So um, if you if you think back to, I think it was, I don't know if it was a year ago or a few months ago, uh, Halliburton was actually looking to buy Baker Hughes before the GE acquisition, and that actually got blocked. And they were also looking to buy it was some Russian company. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, I can't either, but you're right. But that was also blocked as well. Um so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So let me tell you what's kind of the backstory here. So this is Halliburton looking to compete with Schlumberger and Weatherford, specifically around artificial lift. And so Halliburton's kind of lagging behind that. This acquisition um, will allow them to, to kind of fill that gap. Um, because, and the funny thing about this, Jake, is, um, and our audience doesn't know this, we're in talks right now to launch another podcast, and it's literally going to be called Oil and Gas Artificial Lift Podcast. So what perfect time for you to find this story, because <laughs> there's so much interest around that. Over 90% of all the wells in the world use artificial lift, something that I didn't even know, which means it's a big topic, is a bunch of technologies involved. Um, there's a bunch of new technology coming out, and the service companies, the Halliburtons and the Slumberjays and the Weatherfords are at the forefront of that. So here's Halliburton just using some capital uh, to kind of narrow the gap between them, Weatherford, and Slumberjay. Um, and it's a perfect fit. Um, interesting thing about Baker Hughes is that, is that I wasn't so sure when it was announced that Baker was a great fit for Halliburton. Um, and so the uh, department of justice didn't allow that one to go through. And then eventually, um, you know, um, who picked up Baker, Jake, it was, um, 
GE. GE, which yeah. is a perfect fit. Um, so, you know, good good job for Halliburton doing this. It's um, that artificial lift market is is huge. It's going to continue to grow, and their um, their chief executive Jeff Miller, who I've actually who I actually know, I've actually heard him talk numerous times. Um, but you know, he's saying that they're looking to fill the artificial lift business through mergers and acquisitions. So, if you're a company out there and you have something that's unique around artificial lift, you might want to let Halliburton know you exist because they're 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 out there buying stuff. So this article is kind of going back to what we were talking about with the uh, subsea and the ocean floor. Um, so Shell is actually putting on a $7 million competition called the Shell Ocean, ocean Discovery X Prize. Um, so the whole the whole challenge is to create te- technologies that could autonomously map the seabed down to 400 meters water depth at super fast speed. So the first... Jake, Jake, 4,000 meters. Yeah. Did I say 4,000? I say 400. You said 400. Oh, 4,000 meters, yeah. So big difference between the two. Uh, round one, we'll see Tim's attempt to survey 20% of a 500-square-kilometer seafloor competition area in 16 hours in 2,000-meter water depth, then produce a high-resolution map at at least 5 million horizontal resolution and at least 0.5 million vertical resolution. So uh, to kind of put this in perspective... Uh, if you wanted to do this this type of mapping currently, it would take days, if not weeks, uh, which usually would require a ship to go out, which would usually cost over you know sixty thousand dollars a day. So Shell is trying to make some major major advances uh, to help them actually map out the seafloor and you know further their exploration. Yeah. So how cool is this? So you're talking about over you know four thousand meters. That's over thirteen thousand feet of water. <laughs> I mean, this this is not shallow water. And um, the fact that they're um, they're completely rethinking how you do this because right now it's done with towables. So you, like you like you said, you rent the right ship. It's not cheap, and they pull um, acoustic arrays behind them, which is slow, and it's it's it only gets a very narrow snapshot of the ocean floor. So what they're doing here is basically drones. You know, getting a whole swarm of drones to do the exact same thing, but that doesn't need to be towed behind a vehicle that the drones can do it themselves much lower cost um, but since you have so many of them and they're actually closer to ocean floor they do a better job and is much faster and then of course jake you and i cannot do a show without talking about big data the the everything that they send back will be big data right so then they have to do the analytics around this so this is going to make things um cheaper and safer and more accurate while the all the gas companies are doing work offshore, which is good for everybody. And it's going to create new jobs because right now there is no deep water drones doing seismic, I mean, doing acoustic surveys. So once you have to build these things, well, there's another market, which creates jobs. So cool stuff. But isn't it cool how, and, and all of the super majors do this, but isn't it cool how um, Shell is actually making this a contest? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, they do this thing called Ideas 360, which I've actually spoken on two of them. And it's the same thing where they challenge the world's young people. They go, here's the problem that we have. We challenge you to help us figure out a way to fix it because we can't. And what they do is once they figure out how to the, the fixer, who has the most viable um, potential answers, it, since it's a contest, like the top 10 teams in the world gets all gets funding by Shell, get access to their engineers and they get cash and everything else, and they let them go try to fix it. How cool is it that Shell pays a bunch of young people to go figure out how to fix problems? I mean, that's just awesome. It just goes to show how much you know all, all of our industry, in this case Shell, Shell, believes in giving back to the people on the planet. It's just freaking awesome. Imagine one day we'll have something similar to Google Maps, but for the ocean floor. Imagine yeah, how crazy I, that'll be. Matt, I would I would be willing to bet Google's already working on it. In fact, if you listen to the show and you work at Google, let us know because I bet y'all are already working on it. <laughs> so Shell signs a biofuel technology agreement with SBI Bioenergy. 
Uh, they've reached an agreement uh, granting Shell exclusive development and licensing for SBI's biofuel technology. Um, they've patented a process that can convert a wide range of waste oils, greases, and sustainable vegetable oils into lower carbon drop-ins for diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline. Yeah, so how cool is that? Basically, you're taking old stuff you would throw away, like uh, French fry grease or you know, whatever, and by with their patented process, they actually can turn that into a, a drop-in, so an, a drop-in fuel for gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, um, which means that we've taken something that normally we would throw away as a waste, and we're actually using it to burn as fuel. And then because it's a biofuel, um, you know, it counts by, as that whole renewable thing, although you have to fry, fry a lot of French fries in it before you could turn it to diesel, but still technically it's a renewable. So um, I think it's cool because that means that the suppliers, the fuel suppliers, they can use this to help meet their renewable fuel standards without having to tap into things like ethanol, which is, you know, you've heard me say it before, which is really a waste of time and money in our country. Um, it's the only people making money off of, of the subsidized farmers who are growing corn to t- turn in ethanol. But this is a great idea. And the fact that Shell's invested money in this tells you that Shell thinks it's a great idea as well. So the next article, increasing LNG exports marginally positive, positive for the U.S. economy. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it is. Um, the LNG market is still tanked. There's still an oversupply. But we're we're in this frantic race to build all these LNG export facilities. And, and the export facilities is not just the the plant that converts lack, um, natural gas to liquefied natural gas. It's all the infrastructure, uh, everything from the pipelines that are feeding the raw feedstock to the LNG plant, to the terminals where they can load it on the ships, to the ships themselves. Because LNG is the next fuel of the future. It's it's Everybody sees this. I've been seeing this for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, a lot of people in the LNG world are, are, are quite honestly, they're kind of hurt right now because the prices are low. But I promise you, they just stick to it. They will creep back up and they will stabilize. And what's going to happen is the demands keep, could keep going up and up and up, especially from like Asia Pacific and, and also places like India and Central and South America. So the the economic impacts of LNG um, imports have improved, not a lot, but just a little bit domestically here in the U.S., but it will continue to improve. And then one of the things that everybody's worried about is that if it continues to improve, does that mean that the natural gas suppliers that feed the, you know, that sell the gas that runs your stove on your oven, will they instead sell it to the LNG manufacturers because they'll make more money, which will cause our natural gas prices for the population to go up here in the U.S. And that's not true. We have so much natural gas, we don't know what to do with it all. So um, no worries there. If you know all the people are singing doom and gloom about how LNG is going to increase the domestic gas pricing, us they're just wrong. So we talked about the. Uh, I think we've talked about this multiple times, and uh, at least the the past couple episodes, uh, the Venezuela crisis. And I'm sure many people have seen on the news uh, the helicopter attack on. I believe it was on the either the capital or it was downtown. Um, essentially, a stolen helicopter piloted by uh, an officer in Venezuela's investigative police force um, strafed the Supreme Court building and the Interior Ministry, dropping grenades and firing shots before. Wearing away after more than an hour. Um, so the thing is that Maduro, who is their, I guess, I guess he's a president, Nicolas Maduro, uh, has been saying that protesters are plotting a coup against his government. So many people are saying because nobody was actually killed, nobody was actually injured in this little uh, charade, that possibly it was a hoax. Yeah, Jake and I, you and I both know that if you have an armed helicopter and you go strafe a building that's not designed to be strafed, right? 
it's hard to believe he didn't kill somebody. I mean, this guy wasn't a trained soldier, but he was able to fly the helicopter, which makes me think, I mean, he had to have some training. You can't just fly a helicopter. It's not like a, a plane. Um, so I find it hard to believe that nobody got hurt either. Um, you know, he's, I don't know what it was armed with, but it's probably at least 30 caliber machine guns, maybe even 50 caliber machine guns. And that's a world of hurt coming out the end of that helicopter. So we don't know what's happened yet. We do know this much, and I've been saying this for years, that the Venezuelan, this low crude price environment is going to cause Venezuela's government to be overthrown because Jake, it's horrible. There's not enough food. There's not enough medicine. Um, people can't feed their families. There's no supplies and, and it's not getting better. Um, and, and because the entire, just about the entire economy of Venezuela is based upon their export of the heavy complex crews they produce, but now nobody's buying it. And when they nationalized the oil fields, they kicked out all of the good engineering companies. So they, they basically kicked out Exxon. I was talking about this the other day with somebody. It's like Exxon has a long memory. Venezuela will eventually pay the price for taking away all Exxon's investment and just kicking them out of the country. So um, I hate to see this. I hate to see people suffer. The best thing that could happen to the Venezuelan people is they do overthrow the government and they stand up something else, uh, hopefully democracy. Um, but it's just people, it's, you know, people are suffering for no reason. They're suffering because of the corruption in the government. So the things you have to worry about, though, is Venezuela is kind of one of the stability countries, which is scary enough to think of in South America. Um, and so what happens when, when there's this void, when Venezuela's economy is not churning along, when they're not buying and sell stuff as they put a new government in, what's going to happen with um, other countries, right? Is there going to be a bunch of immigrants? You know, is there going to be a bunch of people leaving Venezuela to go to Colombia and Brazil? I know that the, the wealthier Venezuelans left years ago because they saw what was happening they, and they, they took their money with them, which once again hurt the economy of Venezuela. Um, but, you know, you, you can't get food, you can't get milk, you can't get bread, uh, you can't get medicine if somebody gets sick. Um, you know, and they have an election coming up um, the end of July. So we'll keep an eye on this. Um, but I, I, you know, people are saying this is a hoax. I think there's a lot of credibility to that. Yep. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely an interesting story. So we'll see how it all plays out. It seems like you know Venezuela is on a pretty, pretty fast uh, downward spiral. Yeah, they are. Um, and this is the point, Jake, where we do our Red Wings spot. So the winner this week is Sam Osborne, Production Optimization Tech at Oasis Petroleum. Congratulations. Congratulations, Sam. You've won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. If you'd like to win your own awesome Red Wing offshore bag, and they're in super high demand, it's really easy. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You simply go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in, and we draw one lucky winner a week. U.S. rig count for the week is up 2% from the previous week. We're at 1,030 rigs. That is awesome. That's what we want, that slow, steady growth. I'm telling you, 1,300. I misquoted myself on the last show. I originally said at the end of last year would be at 1,300 by the end of this year. And last show, I somehow messed it up and said 17. And so people reached out to me and asked me, am I revising my estimates? Like, no, 1,300 is a number. I just misspoke. <laughs> All right, so events on deck, Mark. What do we got coming up? We got two, right? So we got the um, World Petroleum Congress. It's in Istanbul, Turkey, because people have asked me, is my events newsletter only does stuff in Houston? It's like, nope, this is a great show. Um, and then we also have um, Oil and Gas Asia and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, so if you'd like to learn about these types of shows ahead of time, if you'd like to learn what's going on here in Texas and Houston, if you want free passes to stuff, if you want access to stuff that's not public, that's private, that nobody else gets access to, go sign up for my newsletter. Uh, we send everything out once a month. It's really simple. Jacob put a link in the show notes. And next week should be the first Friday Q&A. So if you have a question, please write in. 
you guys make that show. So we have a whole bunch of questions already, but we would welcome some more. Yep. And if you, we use your question there, you get a big shout out. So it's really simple. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on the button, ask a question, throw your, your question in there. Uh, and like I said, if we use it on the show, you get a big shout out. Um, can you do us a favor? Can you leave us a review? Please, please, please leave us a review. You know, last show I said if we got five new reviews, I wouldn't say this. Jake, did you check the reviews? No, I didn't. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, then. So I'll say it again. Leave us if we get at least five new reviews. I won't talk about. I won't ask you to um, to leave us a review on the next show that we do, which will be the first Friday Q and A. And then, if you like the show, go sign up. Go give us your email address. Go to the website. It's um, oilandgasthisweek.com. Give us your email address. We won't spam you ever. And that will be the first place everybody learns about anything new we do. The second place will be the LinkedIn group. So if you're not a member of the LinkedIn group, go sign up. Go sign up as uh, Oil and Gas Global Network or OGGN. Uh, I think we're up to about 1,700 members and it's growing, um, that will be the second place that we do any announcements. And it's actually kind of cool because I've watched salespeople share contacts. I've seen people help other people copyright stuff. I've seen people answer questions. So it's sort of like our family for all the podcasts online, it just happens to be on LinkedIn. And then if you like the show, can you do me a favor? Can you just share it with your buddies? I actually spoke to somebody, Jake, uh, earlier this week that has shared it with 71 different people in the company he works with. He's keeping track of how many people that he shares it with because he, he's hoping he'll win something. I go, you know what? We, yeah, you'll get something. Keep track of how many people he shared it with. Um, so we don't need you to share it with 71. Share it with your coworker, right? One person would be awesome. The more people that we get to listen to the show, the more we can help and the better everybody, everything is. Um, anything else we can talk about, Jake? That's it, man. Let's get back to work. All right. So folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.